Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. As an investigative reporter, I really use a lot of that information to also find people, but then I'm also very aware about how people can use that information to find me. Your local police department or city hall are not the owners of public data. It's in the name. It's public data. Among the most important tools in a reporter's toolbox are those that help them collect public data and present it in a way to support their reporting. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Arlo Malmberg is the Discovery Program Manager at UC Berkeley's Data Science Education Program, and Lisa Pickoff-White is a data reporter for KQED in San Francisco. They're here today to talk to me about this really kind of exciting project they're working on, looking at data from California about uses of force by police and misconduct by police that the Berkeley faculty, KQED, and others are putting together. Arlo and Lisa, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Thanks for having us, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you again for coming. This is really kind of neat. I like I like talking about data because it's exciting possibilities for you know examining big important issues like this about police misconduct. So, but I usually like to start off with finding a little bit about my guests. Arlo, let's start with you. Tell me about your role at the Data Science Discovery Program. So. The Data Science Discovery Program is an experiential learning program for data science students at UC Berkeley. So we match them, those students, with real-world data science projects. And so we work with organizations in the social sector, so like government agencies, NGOs, nonprofits. We also do quite a bit of work with on-campus faculty researchers, and we do a number of projects with social impact startups. So. My role is to sort of manage the day-to-day logistics, but sort of my favorite part is talking to our project partners and figuring out where is a project where our students can come in and bring value. What is the data that our project partners have that they want to make the most of and where do our students fit in? So recently we've done a number of projects with media organizations that we've been really excited about and our project with, with Lisa has, has been one of our favorites. So Lisa, tell me, how did you get interested in um, data journalism and how did you end up at KQED? Well, actually, I was a reporter in D.C. for a number of years before I discovered that data journalism really existed as a job. I went to um, UC Berkeley uh, for graduate school. I had always been a bit of a geek and saw news moving online, and I wanted to be a bigger part of that. And while I was there, I had the great opportunity to work on the Chauncey Bailey project was was an investigation into a killing of a black journalist in Oakland. And it was there in the Alameda courthouse pulling garbage liens that I could suddenly see the power that data journalism had, how you could collect data and see trends about stories. And it was just so exciting. It was like I could literally see the world in a different way. And once I had the experience on that project, I knew that that was really something that I wanted to do. And I was able to work in online production, in broadcast, and then also really start honing in on data journalism later in my career after that. It's interesting that you say you had this, this sort of, you know, aha movement, but I guess it, maybe it isn't that interesting or surprising 
you know, what type of stories did you certainly suddenly see could be told by using data? Well, I think it just really illuminated to me that there were different ways of asking questions. There's different ways of seeing how people can come together. So in this case, you know, one of my first projects on that internship was actually trying to pull garbage liens to see where members of the Bay family lived in Oakland and how they related to each other to actually basically see who, who was part of this inner circle. And, you know, before that, I don't know if I would have thought, you know, there's data about people that you could use to see how they interact. I mean, this has all just become, there's so much more data gathered about us now than there even was before. I mean, I was basically using you know, people's regular filings to the government to learn more about them. And now, I mean, we all just leave pieces of our digital lives online. And it's something I do think about a lot. And this is a bit of a digression, but, you know, it's as an investigative reporter, I really use a lot of that information to also find people. But then I'm also very aware about how people can use that information to find me. And that's that can be problematic for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is is safety you know, for you and your family. But then on the other hand, it's important that people are able to, to contact you. It's quite the conundrum. But let's talk a little bit about the background that led up to this, this project involving data around police misconduct in California. How did that sort of come together? Well, you know, I have to take you on a little time machine uh, to actually go back to 2018. So in 2018, new legislation was passed in California, that was SB 1421. And that really allowed for the first time people to request, you know, certain police reports, body-worn camera footage, and other information about uses of force where someone was really seriously injured or killed, or also sustained findings of misconduct. That's when the agency itself said, hey, you know, what you did, that is out of our policy because it was dishonest, because it was sexual assault or other reasons as well. But that law, while it, it basically just made these available, it was like, hey, you could go request these documents, but we're not going to like put them on a website for you to go find or anything like that or, or data <laughs> or um, introduce it as data. And so what happened is actually news organizations across the state realized that we all had a joint interest in these records. And so now about 40 news organizations are still working to request and gather information in California about uses of force that cause serious injury or about these findings of misconduct. And it's been a slog, to be honest. We knew it was going to be a lot of work getting 40 news organizations to work together on anything definitely has its challenges, but we need this collaboration because this work, there's just so much to do. And without collaboration, we're never going to get through it. At this point, we have more than 2,100 record requests that we're managing. We've had to sue some agencies. When the law was passed, some agencies, for instance, started to shred their documents. But another thing, another real challenge that we've also had, though, is just determining whether the agencies are giving us the appropriate number of documents. For instance, um, in Richmond, for example, they originally released 13 use of force cases to us, but then under a court order had to release 122, right? So there's a big difference between 13 and 122. And those cases have been some of the most interesting cases to me, I think, too, where we really get into these questions of what is serious injury? For instance, is a, a canine bite a serious injury? 
Hmm. And just so I understand that, stand the law prior to the law, pretty much you could get whatever they were willing to give you. Did you have that ability? Well, previously, California was one of three states that restricted information on investigations. And one of the things that SB 1421 really did was allow people to not just get a police report, for instance, about a use of force, but it also allows us to see some of the documents about how that use of force was investigated, right? Did a sergeant call a witness after it to see what happened? What did a district attorney find? What did an oversight body find, for instance, right? It really allows us to not only see what happened during the use of force, but what did the agency do to investigate that use of force as well? So it gives us a window, not just into these serious uses of force and to misconduct, but into how the agencies and oversight bodies and other people are looking at these uses of force as well. But one of our huge challenges, of course, is that we're not getting, well, a lot of this information, I think of it as data. We're not getting it as data. We're getting it as PDFs. We're getting it as body-worn camera footage. And so one of our real challenges, right, has been how do we take this huge amount of information and get usable information out of it? It's pretty fascinating. Now, it's a state law, and does that mean that every municipality has to you know, follow the the strictures of the of the state law, or do you have to, you know, use different approaches for for different cities? Well, we've sent out more than seven hundred requests in California, because you know one of our first challenges was just figuring out actually who to ask. You know, I think people when they think of law enforcement, it's easy to think about police, it's easy to think about sheriffs, about prison guards, jail guards. But we also found, for instance, sworn law enforcement officers working in welfare departments. There's officers in schools. One of the things that we've tried to do is make sure that we're really requesting these records from anybody who might be holding them. But like I said, we, we are still actually in some active litigation with some agencies about producing these records. And many agencies are also giving us these records very, very slowly. So while we have records about thousands of cases in California, that is like the tip of the iceberg. We are expecting to get many, many more records and we are putting pressure on agencies to get those records. But I think where Berkeley's really come in is what do we do with those records once we get them? And the work that both Berkeley and Stanford and we're working on with other engineers as well. So you mentioned that, that some of that data was coming in in PDFs and in other forms. Arlo, how are you and the other uh, faculty members at Berkeley and Stanford sort of processing this stuff? Well, let me just first clarify, you know, my role here is, is to bring the students into the project and to really set them up for success, to engage with the work that, that Lisa and her team is doing and to do the, the data science work of understanding the documents in a way that can be analyzed in, in a high volume. So we are really proud of, of the work that our students are able to do in the curriculum that, that they've gone through. And so projects like these are really an opportunity for them to stretch their work, stretch their abilities into an applied context and to engage with you know, a lot of these questions around the context of their work and the consequences of the, the analyses that they're doing. Is that from a technical standpoint or are you doing it also socially or ethically? You know, are you weighing some of those considerations as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. So that we're, we're training our students to do the technical work, of course, and maybe Lisa can talk a bit about what that's looking like in, in practice. But we're also training them to engage with the broader societal questions that come with doing that technical work, as opposed to just you know putting their head down and typing the code. We want to make sure that our students are equipped to, to do that in a way that ethically and responsibly engages with the human context of, of the work that they're doing. Where's the funding for this project coming from? Many, many places. <laughs> <laughs> I need it. Um, I'm requesting a thorough list. Of the, no, I just... Oh my God. I mean, when I talk to people about what I'm doing right now, I sometimes tell people that I feel like I'm working on the journalism moon landing because this project is just so exciting, but also so big. So I've been for the last, you know, more than three years working with about 40 news organizations throughout California to try to, try to request and obtain these records about police use of force and misconduct in the state, right? So that's already, that's exciting, right? That's a lot of news organizations who may not have worked before working together. That includes academic groups like Berkeley and Stanford. But then we realized that there are people all over the country doing this work, actually, who have really, really similar problems that we do, who are also trying to figure out how do you take nonlinear documents, how do you take a police report and turn that into data, like Arlo said, how do you turn a police report into data that you can analyze and look for trends in and look for stories in and really see what is happening in a different way. And so as part of that, we started working with the Community Law Enforcement Accountability Network, which includes journalists, engineers, attorneys from all over the country as well. Because, you know, one of the engineers and students I'm working with, Helena Nigatu, who's really amazing, you know, she is like, well, you know, these records that you have in California are really the same as these records that you have in DC. And we're having the same problem where, you know, we have 50 cases in one PDF and how do we actually extract information out of that, right? So even though we've obtained our records, I'd say through this very specific law, like how we can actually get information out of them is really something that we'll be able to apply nationally is our hope. And you asked about funding, which is how I got here, but all of that is to say, it's like, I mean, there's probably like 50 organizations at this point who are working together, who are collaborating to try to get information out of police records. And to me, it's just amazing every day. <laughs> you know, I did an interview with a reporter from a data reporter from ProPublica a couple of years back, and she was working on a project that they were doing about tracking hate, the rise of hate crimes in recent years across the country, the problem that she was facing is that, you know, they only got a certain amount of information from the FBI because, you know, not all of the jurisdictions were reporting information or they were reporting it, everybody was reporting it in a different way. So the data that they were getting was was coming to them in all different types of ways. So it, even though that they were able to tell one story about, you know, they could look and see a trend there was still so much more that they weren't able to bring in because, you know, either people weren't reporting it or it was in a way that they couldn't access it. Are you at all concerned that you're only getting a limited look into some of the data that might be there? Oh, yes. I mean, I think every single data set I've ever worked with has limitations. And I think this is why, you know, I look at data reporting as reporting, to be honest. Like, I, I love data reporting. It's my passion and what I do. But I think, you know, it's a tool of the trade. And I think most data journalists would tell you this, like 
my analysis doesn't replace interviewing people on the ground and it doesn't replace looking at many data sets. And actually, I would say one of the exciting things I think about this project too is that actually we're working hard to bring together different data sets as well. We're not just looking at SB 1421 data in California these records that were opened through this law. We're also looking at other information that people are submitting through state and federal laws as well. And we always do miss things, frankly. You know, we've been able to do reporting already in a couple of areas out of this. We were able to find, you know, that police in Bakersfield, California, instance, for instance, were breaking dozens of people's bones. We were able to find, you know, all of these dog bites in Richmond, California, but even while we were doing those stories, we found people who weren't in our records because the police say in some cases that they didn't know that those people were seriously injured. You know, I've helped speak with a man who was beaten on his doorstep by officers after um, a case of mistaken identity, essentially. You know, years after that incident, he still can't, you know, fully lift his arms to paint, which is a real passion of his life and something he was really looking forward to do in, in retirement. And, you know, he wasn't actually counted in the original cases that we got from Bakersfield Police Department because the agency says that even though they broke his bones, they did not know that he was seriously injured and therefore didn't report it to us. You know, as you're collecting this data, as you're putting in your request, are you getting pushback from law enforcement and uh, police groups? Oh, yes. I mean, we have had requests out for years now. Uh, we're still in litigation with some police groups, with some jurisdictions to really try to get these files. And we are still pushing on it. We are still sending record requests this year. You know, each year also police, you know, commit more, more misconduct. They use more force. So every year we also have to renew our request to try to make sure that we are getting that information. So I think on January 3rd this year, we sent out more than 700 requests again in California. Wow. Oh, that's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> yeah, no. It's, and that's why, you know, I've been working on this project now for over three years. And I think, you know, I really learned that it's a big project and I think big projects can sometimes scare newsrooms, you know, but it's just, I think this is just such an important project for our time. And the only way to do the work is to do the work, right? Because we learn as we do it, we learn how to do it better. We learn how to apply these great technologies and tools to it. And, you know, a lot of these things are things that I don't know if I would have even thought we could have done 10 years ago. One of the big challenges that we have is every single jurisdiction essentially has police reports, has use of force reports differently. You know, we can't say, okay, computer, you know, we're going to train you on exactly how to extract information out of this one form for this one police agency, right? We have over 700 in California alone. And so what the students have really been doing is essentially teaching programs to teach themselves how to deal with this great variety, how to read these many different reports from many different places, even though sometimes they're created using the exact same software and getting information out of that. And that is just so imperative and so exciting. So as you're doing this, as you're, are you developing best practices for doing the reach outs, but also in, you know, the data processing and assembly? Is this something that, you know, once you get to a certain degree or certain point in the project, other people will be able to come in and learn from and, and employ the techniques that you're using to 
you know, request and gather data and assemble it? That's exactly what we're hoping to do. I sometimes think of it almost as writing people recipes, for instance. Actually, I've recently had the, the privilege of working with Harriet Rowan at the Mercury News here in the Bay Area. You know, she was able to take some of the work that we had done in Bakersfield, for instance, and use that in her analysis in Richmond, California. They were able to show, to look at these more than 70 dog bites that occurred there over several years. And to me, that's really important, these kinds of recipes. And this isn't new to data journalism. And actually one of the things that I'm really excited about working with Big Local at Stanford for as well is that they provide these kinds of recipes uh, for journalists. And actually they've done that for COVID data, for school enrollment data. And also one of the things that we're working with Berkeley students and engineers with as well are tools for reporters who don't code. You know, I come from a local newsroom. I'm a data reporter. I'm a coder, but I work with a lot of people who aren't. And I know I am very, very aware how stretched thin reporters are in 2022. But, you know, this information is especially important for local reporters, right? Like my dream is that, you know, an officer uh, shoots someone at a gas station and that local reporter would be able to go look up that officer and see what their previous history is, for instance. And I want that person to be able to do that without code. And that's something as well that these engineers are working with us on is how do we bring this important information to journalists, to the public, and to other people whose information this really is. Arlo, what other type of data sets are you working with? What are the other type of information that you're gathering and able to sort of push out for newsrooms to use? Well, the data, as Lisa mentioned, really comes from the reporters themselves, right? And that's what our program is all about, is empowering journalists and other organizations to, to do the work to process these massive amounts of data and, and documents using these data science techniques that allow our students and, and those teams to pull out insights at a large scale. And so what's really exciting about this is, is that it doesn't have to be expensive either. Like Lisa mentioned, uh, you know, if newsrooms are nervous about jumping into one of these big projects, I think something to keep in mind is that you know, a lot of the tools that students are using to, to process the data are open source and free to use. And our program, uh, of course, is free to participate in. So you get the students' time at a low cost as well. So free student, free student labor, labor, right? We all, <laughs> we all love it. But in terms of the data, you know, that's coming from the reporters themselves and, and the topics that they're interested in and, and making these requests for, for documents and, and our, our students are, are going through and processing them. I know, uh, Lisa, that you mentioned the dog bite story. You know, what other types of stories have been able, you've been able to cover or have been able to be told with the use of the data that's been gathered through this project? Well, I've been working on this project for many years. We've only really been able to start processing the data and working with it since the summer. So we've done reporting in Bakersfield, California, where we've looked at baton strikes and broken bones there. We've also been looking at how people with mental illness are treated in several jurisdictions in California. That's ongoing. And we've been able to work with the Bay Area News Group on that story out of Richmond, California as well. And we have more coming. Now, I know that this started with a law that was passed. Do you have allies in the legislature who are, you know, that you can go to to sort of get help in new legislation or maybe even like something like setting up a, a standard way to report certain types of incidents? 
actually, there have been several laws, including uh, laws that passed in 2021 that do change what we are able to do. So for instance, SB2, SB16, those are laws that passed and were signed by the governor that will actually expand the kinds of records that we track. They will give officers in California unique IDs so that we can track officers as they move from agency to agency, for instance. And I'm very excited about these new laws, which will allow us to expand the requests that we're making so that we can see more of what is occurring. Now, I know, you know, in some of the information that was given to me before our interview, that you did have a call out for partners to come in to be part of this project. And the period of putting those requests has passed, but you're going to have another one, I guess, a call out in August. What can people do to sort of get involved with this project? What could maybe they do, you know, reporters in their own jurisdictions to try to get something like this going? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is it really is about collaboration. And like I said, one of the amazing things to me is just how many people in this country are actually working on taking data about uses of force, about police misconduct, and trying to transfer that to change that into real data. Though these are people who are journalists, activists, lawyers, engineers, all sorts of people are doing this work. It's really amazing. And I think it's really important that we're talking to each other because there's just so much work to do. And we can do it if we all work together. And I think part of that is sharing. It's sharing records that we are creating. It's talking to each other to open source the work that we're doing so that if we are writing code to help, you know, say this is a corridor report, this is a witness statement, if we're writing code to extract out information, officer names, for instance, of documents, that we share that with each other. Because while these documents are different, a lot of the tools that we can use on them are similar. And I think that right now for people who do want to get involved, whether they're in California or across the country, you know, the the Community Law Enforcement Accountability Network, that's really why it exists. And we encourage people to get in touch with us so that we can work together. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you guys want to, to mention or discuss? I mean, I think one thing I'd say actually that I really appreciated about the Berkeley students was that they brought their whole selves to this project. You know, two of the students that I had an opportunity to work with both had experience with law enforcement, whether that was through a family member who was a law enforcement officer or who had experienced, you know, police interactions. And something I think we also tend to think sometimes is that these are separate people. And, you know, most people both know law enforcement, people who work in law enforcement and have encountered, you know, had experiences with law enforcement as well. And I think what I really enjoyed about some of the Berkeley students is that they were able to bring their lives to this project. They were able to say, you know, I've lived in a community, you know, I'm a Latina and bring their experiences to ask questions and to help us view the data and to help us think about how we can use the data. Arlo, what is it? I mean, for, you know, obviously this, this project is giving the students a unique opportunity. How has it affected them being involved in a project like this? This is an opportunity for students to work in data science outside of the traditional data science tech uh, paths or industries that, you know, a lot of students look towards. So, you know, students start studying data science and think, okay, they'll go work at, you know, Facebook, Apple, et cetera. But there's just so much work to be done in newsrooms, in government agencies, and so on. So much data that, you know, can lead to, to really impactful insights. So 
this type of project gives students the opportunity to see how data and how their data science skills can really impact the communities that they care about. Yeah, and that's exactly, I just want to say what I saw. Like I, I had the opportunity to work with one student, Arlette Miranda in particular, who was just so excited that she could apply data science to you know, her lived experience in San Jose, for instance, or other places in California that she's been. And it was just so exciting to watch her like really see how she could make a change. It's one of the privileges of being a journalist. Sometimes we don't always talk about this as much, but when we get to see how our work improves people's lives or helps them or, or maybe changes something, you know, there's a degree of satisfaction as a journalist that you can feel about that. And so, you know, having students taking something, you know, a class that they really care about and then suddenly seeing that it has a real world application that's, you know, maybe changing people's lives. I, I would imagine that'd be very a powerful motivator. Arlo, Lisa, thank you. This is really fascinating. You know, how is there a dashboard available or is there, are there resources available where people can see the type of work you're doing at the project? You know, I don't know, think Clean has a website. The California Reporting Project does, and we have stories that we've done out of data that we've been able to collect there. We'll include some of those links with the story when this is published. Lisa and Arlo, thank you for uh, giving me some of your time. This has been really fascinating. I love hearing about something big and positive that's trying to tackle a, a big real world issue in a very smart way. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.